Welcome to Be the Difference. Presented to you by Back to Back Ministries, continuing to be a voice for orphan and vulnerable children around the world. We share stories of everyday people who are being the difference in the lives of others. I'm Sammy Summerlin, and I'm here with my co-host, Chris Cox. Another fun conversation. This one feels very around the world-ish. Yeah, I was going to say international. This week we're talking to a friend, Sarah Jensen. Sarah Jensen is on staff with Back to Back Ministries in Monterey, Mexico. She is the coordinator of a program that we call the Transition Program, which is about transitioning students to independence. But some other fun things about her is that she is Norwegian, like we said. As you're going to learn in this episode, she's lived all around the world. She has been a youth pastor. She's been a missionary kid. She grew up in several different countries, and she is passionate about travel and coffee. Me which are, too. Yep, things that we all have in common. Um, so, Chris, what should they listen for in this episode? This is a really fun conversation that Sarah shares, a, a journey that may be unique to a lot of us as we listen. So I first invite you to listen for how her vantage point on her own story changed in each season of her life. First in really an invitation moment to what she might define as her calling, to a missionary season, to now in a season of life where she has lived in one place the longest ever. So listen for that that story changing over time. Second, when it comes to the role that she currently plays, listen for the growth and the understanding of what humans long for in community um, and the way that Sarah sees that through the eyes of emerging uh, young adults and that vantage point. And last, enjoy the ending where you are greeted in three different languages because I am still impressed by this. So Sarah, I was reading through some of the information that we get about our guests ahead of time, and I learned something new about you, because you and I are friends, but I didn't know this about you, that you felt the first call to be a missionary when you were 13 years old. Like, how did you know that at 13? How did you even know about being a missionary at 13? Like, how (laughs) how did that happen? Well, it's kind of one of my funnier testimonies and stories with God. Um, I grew up as a missionary kid and by 13 we were moving probably for the like sixth time as a family Mm -hmm. but the previous moves have been easier because I was still a kid and I was entering my teenage years and we had been living in Norway which is where I'm from and we're going to move all the way to Argentina again and for me i was kind of just fed up so that summer we were going to move i was pretty angry with god and almost angry at the fact that i knew i couldn't stop believing him in him because i knew he was there mm-hmm. so i was just angry um at probably one of my more dramatical like teenage stages as well and that summer i went to a youth conference in norway and i didn't know much about it before i went i just went And then I found out that the theme of that whole youth festival was missions that year. And so again, I was kind of like, ha ha, God, you're so funny. (laughs) And the last night they were doing this thing of like, if anybody feels called to give their life to Jesus and just follow him fully. And 
even be a part of the mission that God's doing in the world, you can take a step forward or raise your hand. And I remember at that church service, sitting down in my chair and being like, I'm not going up. Like, I know what missions is. I'm not doing that. That's not for me. And however, something was kind of like a curious thing in me that said, like, I need to figure out what it is. So I went up and I was expecting the pastor to come pray for over me and he didn't make it. So some volunteer that I didn't know came and prayed over me. And I remember she praying that what your parents have been doing is no longer just going to be your parents, but you're going to get to be a part of it and you're going to be in the same ministry and work and see how God is going to work through you. And that impacted me a lot. And at the same time, in Norway at that time, it was they kind of did the premiere of the song from Hillsong, Hosanna. Mm -hmm. And that second verse in that song says, I see a generation rising up to take their place with selfless faith. And that is a sentence that has just stuck with me. So that was my first kind of experience of knowing that God wanted to use me in ministry somehow. Of course, I had many doubts and many times where I would try to run away from it later. But that was probably my first time of just knowing that, okay, God wants to shape my life in a specific way. What happened next? So you have this pivotal moment that happens to then, you know, you does your attitude towards missions immediately change and all of a sudden you're teachable from your parents and you're following in because you're ready to go? Or is there are there some other like hiccups along the way? I was still pretty, I mean, hurt by having to move. One of the yeah. reasons was we were moving and not going back to Norway for at least two years. So we do the big move. We arrive in Argentina. Argentina and Norway are very different. And we didn't like, we moved to a middle class towards lower class area. And I remember having friends in Norway that I would like ride on messenger to and be like, I can't believe I'm living in this third world country. And I wish I could just take the first plane and come back to you. And so I was still pretty, I mean, I guess it was my own fear of what, of the unknown. However, Within the first weeks living in Argentina, I started having friends at church that we were serving at. Um, we were going there because my parents were starting a Bible school. And that same church that we were at, they had a food bank for kids where they would serve kids, like 150 kids dinner each day. And also they could take Tupperware with food for their parents and families. And they did this Saturday school where they came and they got to have like basically kind of like a Sunday school, but on Saturday mornings. And I got to be a part of it. And starting to know those people and those kids, I think that's what started changing me and knowing like, it just changed me in a way of not tolerating living where I was living, but starting to love it, love the people, love their stories and understanding that I would never want to do anything else than being able to serve somebody that I was able to serve. I think it's interesting because I feel like we've had a lot of conversations with people who have gone and been the missionary. We've, I can only think of one other conversation where we've gotten to talk to someone who was a missionary kid and who was taken on that journey with their parents seemingly or oftentimes against their will. Um, 
like if you were going to talk to missionary parents, what's like one thing that's helpful and one thing that is not helpful? Um, I think one thing that was very helpful for me uh, was that my parents allowed us to be a part of the conversations. So a lot of the decisions were made in grown-up conversations, but then it was always an explanation of within a year we're going to move. So we had good time to know. It wasn't like from one month to another. And we knew kind of what the next steps were, and they allowed us to kind of know those steps. And that was helpful. Another thing that was very helpful was that throughout my whole upbringing, I knew other missionary kids. I was friends with other missionary kids. So in those times when I would feel very different or not being able to kind of compare myself with my classmates, I knew that, okay, there's a group of us weird kids. (laughs) And so that helped a lot. And I think the one thing that we as a family maybe didn't do the best and could have been better at was talking about the emotions around moving allowing ourselves to grieve the moves, allowing ourselves that time to say like, this makes me sad, this makes me excited. We jumped straight to the excitement and everything that was good about to come without necessarily going through the grief of what we were leaving behind. That's good. These lessons that you learned and then this, you know, this relationship that you had both with missions as a child of missionaries and then growing up like cross-culturally like you have a we're not having a conversation with you while you're in argentina right now nor are you in norway you're in monterey right (laughs) yes so how has how did having a cross-cultural childhood help empower you to see those relationships and see people in a real healthy or maybe holistic way I think it's been one of my greatest strengths today Mm. has been just that I've become much more adaptable. I don't need something to be a specific way, but I can know that there are always multiple solutions to problems or multiple ways to do things. And it's given me this openness to not necessarily having to have it my way because I've learned through different cultures that different ways can have different type of blessings and it has opened my worldview in an amazing way and then it has also helped me to learn how it is to be the outsider Mm. so even when I've been living in Norway I immediately feel drawn to immigrants or to people who are not ethnically Norwegian because I have something in common with them knowing how it is to live away from your home country or birth country that's a great insight and it made me want to ask you the question of like if i were to ask you where is home how would you answer (laughs) that question i mean it used to be where my parents are but now i've like i'm older i'm like late 20s so home has become kind of where i'm at Mm. And I adapted to become my home. So right now my home is Monterey. My culture, I'm still shaped by my home culture. So there are still things that even though I've adapted a lot to living in Monterey and I love the Mexican culture, there's things that 
are culturally Norwegian that are still just going to be a part of me. But I had this one time I was praying over this of like, God, I don't feel like I really belong anywhere. And I was kind of struggling with not having those roots. And I just got this image of being at an airport with many gates, many arrivals and many departures, knowing that I had an end. I had an end game. My end game was being in eternity with God. So it helped me kind of being like, okay, I'm just on this journey and I'm going to have many layovers on my journey, but I know my ultimate goal. I know where I'm supposed to land. So it doesn't really matter how many layovers I have on the way. And that has been something that has helped me kind of manage this multicultural person I've become. Hmm. I love that image, I think. (laughs) And I think that's representative of your life also, because you've been back and forth in different countries. You've been in Argentina, in Norway, and then pursuing ministry opportunities in multiple countries. So as you're like, you do missions with your parents, you're growing out of being a missionary kid and becoming a missionary yourself or growing into ministry yourself. What made you want to like actually take the step when it came down to it and make the choice to go into full-time ministry when it wasn't just like an idea anymore? Yeah. So After I graduated high school, I went to a discipleship school for a year in Amsterdam. And my prayer a lot was there like, God, I don't I don't know what I want to study. I don't know what I want to become. I had this kind of calling, but it wasn't like I didn't know to what, where or when. So it was just a blank. Um, So I actually applied to become a youth pastor in Norway after I was about to finish my school year, which I actually got a job. I was so afraid to not be equipped to be a youth pastor. So in my acceptance letter, I actually replied, thank you very much, but I have to decline. And I signed up for my second year of Bible school where that church a couple weeks later met my, like the pastor met my dad and asked if I would reconsider. And I was, I got that message from my dad. And I remember being like cleaning one of our classrooms and just breaking down and feeling like I was running away. And so two weeks later, I humbled myself and I emailed the church again back and was like, would you still take me? I want to take that position anyways. And that was God teaching me for the first time that it's not about if I'm equipped or ready. It's about what he can do through me. Mm -hmm. I worked as a youth pastor for four years before I moved out here while being a youth pastor because of my experiences growing up and seeing how much blessing there is in getting to know different cultures and what missions had done through my life, I was adamant that I needed to take my youth group on a missions trip. Mm. And as I was looking for opportunities, I saw so many closed doors. And then I remembered, oh, I have these friends in Mexico working for this organization. They take teams all the time. So I sent an email to back to back and I was like, hey, would you guys take a Norwegian group? We, we can do like, we can listen to things in English. We'll understand, but would you take us? And they did. And day one, coming to our ministry site here in Mexico at Back to Back, I had this weird sense of home. Mm. And two of my biggest passions, culture and missions, plus this knowledge that I wanted to do something for vulnerable teenagers specifically. I saw both of those things happening at this place. 
And so I knew that God had something for me there. And that's kind of how my back-to-back journey started. I came back the following summer as an intern and then knew I had to take those steps of faith. (laughs) What is it about the need of a teenager that draws you in to want to be part of that particular story? It kind of goes back to hearing in my teen years that some teenagers were impossible cases Mm. or, oh, that's an impossible case or that kid is so messed up. And for me, having grown up learning and having had people in my life always telling me that God has a good plan for my life and you can have hope and you can have expectation and you have future. And I felt that so unfair. Mm. Like, why would somebody tell me that? What qualified me to have a good future and that kid to be on the sideline as an impossible case. And for me, I was like, that's not true. And I, even when I was in high school living in Norway, our news, local newspaper would sometimes post like this shadow pictures of kids that needed foster homes. And I remember one time ripping that page out and like praying specifically for the teenagers because I knew that they were gonna have a harder time become placed, being placed in a home and being kind of frustrated about not being able to do anything. And so when I came on my very first trip to Mexico, I actually remember Sammy giving a trauma-competent care talk. And she was giving some examples about the teenagers that were in the HOPE program at in Monterey. And it touched me because it was the first time I'd heard somebody talk about those kids that could have been on the sidelines with so much hope and future for their life and with an actual solution about what you can do to bring them to knowing that they are special and knowing that they have hope. And so that was a very like impactful moment in my life as well. I think that's so cool how that ties into what you said about having eyes for the outsider, like having eyes for the person who feels on the margin or left out or like they don't fit. And that is the experience of many teenagers who are told, you're too much, too far gone, too complicated, too hard, is that outsider and and you have that call to bring not only teenagers, but all outsiders in. I think that's an incredible tie-in from your multicultural childhood. Um, yeah. But when you think about teenagers specifically in the context that you're working now, you're in this like crucial window where they're adulting. Like they're becoming grownups with real world consequences and challenges. What is so critical about that time period? I think the most critical thing about that time period, especially the young adults that I work with, most of them have had most of their lives at an institution. Mm. And so it's almost like when they are getting close to that age where they're 19, 20 years old, having to move out and be independent, they feel so lost. They feel like they don't belong. And so it's walking with them and helping them to re-enter the community that they're a part of and allowing them to know that they're not alone. Even though if their biological family might be more or less present, they're not alone, but they have somebody with them. Um, And helping them to know that even though they had a challenging childhood, it doesn't mean that their whole adult life have to be the same. They're, they can change that path and their adult life can be 
full of blessings and amazing. And yeah, for me, it's just giving them the opportunity to dream and hope again. When you mentioned that, you know, a, a youth that's coming from an institutionalized background and then tries to go back into like, or enter into maybe more of a, a organic society that there's a problem. What are the key elements that need to stay consistent or that we need to address when we are recognizing that, that transition? I think what I'm really asking is what is it about, you know, historically we see things as graduation and success to independence. Mm -hmm. And what are we missing around some of the things that need to stay in interdependence um, that maybe haven't served kids well when they've transitioned out? Yeah. One of the things I've learned the most, and it has kind of flipped my priorities in leading this program, has gone from, I have to think, like kind of shift the order in what I work. So the main thing that I work on and support the students with right now is giving them a healthy community. That means a mentor, a role model, and for them to have a friend group around them that has a positive influence in their life. So even before I think about their education or vocational training, for me, it's like they can't walk life alone. They need somebody there. And it has been shown through multiple studies, too, that of aging out youth, that the two like main factors of success in somebody aging out of the system is exactly that, to have peers that are walking with you and have a role model to follow. Secondly, it is to help them kind of reach some kind of goal. Some of them will never graduate high school, like university or college. And that's okay as long as they can have either some kind of skill that they decide, okay, I'm going to do this trade school, but let's celebrate that you're taking those, those steps. Or I took this job, but they have opportunities to take some courses that can make me grow in salary and position. Okay, let's do that together. And for them to see that they can achieve goals has been super important. And lastly, is to walk with them as they learn very practical life skills. And that can look like me going to the grocery store with the student, having a specific budget, and together we make a grocery list. And we talk about what meal plans you can do, what it is to stick to a budget. And so that those things that you would naturally learn at home, you can have that now in this phase as well. Yeah, I heard someone say once that growing up in an institution, which when we say institution, we mean like a children's home. It's a facility where kids live full time, not with their biological family. And it kind of is like this self-contained world. And it's kind of mm -hmm. like being stuck in a pond, whereas community is like a river and life outside of an institution is like a river. It moves and it goes places and kids go to the grocery store with their parents and they watch how that works and they they go out to dinner with aunts and uncles and they see how that works and they like get to be a part of this river that moves. But what you're doing is you're saying, okay, you've been in the pond, like mm -hmm. stuck. Now let's get you back moving in the river. Like let's get you connected to friends and have experiences and go places and do things. And, and they're teenagers with hard stories. And some days it, probably feels really discouraging and frustrating because it's a two steps forward, three steps back kind of journey. So yeah. on those like really hard days, is there a story you go to in your mind that says like, and because this is possible, like this is still worth it to keep doing? Mm 
For me, I think it's many snippets of stories. So they're more like moments because their lives are shifting continuously. So sometimes it's like, what is a success story and what is a failed story in a way? For me, none of them are there yet. Like they're still alive. They're still stories. However, one person that really impacted me was one of the boys I've met the very first time I came in a group here. He was only 12 years old. And on that group, he asked me if I would teach him English. And once I moved here, we were able to continue staying connected. And he became part of the HOPE program. I was going to the same church as that family. So I got to see him eat dinner at their house multiple times and see him grow. And then when he was about to graduate from high school last summer, he invited me. He had three tickets of invitation for his graduation and he invited me and wanted me to be a part of it and said like you could be like my big sister and for me that was so impactful that God would allow me to see that growth in him not only see him grow and graduate but actually be top of his class Hmm. and that's just for me one story that has I've been able to see like through my whole journey of back to back And then other than that, it's just multiple times, those times where I've seen uh, a boy like finish an exam that he had failed three times, but on the fourth try, he made it. And that smile of, oh, I can do this. Those those small snippets and pictures, I think, are what keeps me going. It's good. I think it was important that you that you help frame it in a way that there's no, this is not a finish line, right? Like this isn't a sprint that says there's a win. And once you're here, everything is good. It's, this is a journey that we're going on together. And with that journey, what are some of the things that you've started to learn are good mile markers or measuring to see if you as a, as an investor in lives, like if you're on the right track of like, what are some things that you look for on a journey as opposed to trying to create finish lines throughout Yeah. One of the things I look for a lot now is health in their friends and friendly environment. So just health in their social life, knowing they have good friends around them that are supportive, that would pray with them, and that they are seeking those communities, that they're seeking a faith community and being actively a part of it. For me, that's a huge sign of health because then I know that if they get dropped from their job, if they are failing a class, they have who they can come go to mm. and not have to stand in those things alone. Because I think a lot of times we give up when we are alone, not when we are in community and supported by others that tell you, just take one more step, just keep going. And a second thing is when they start getting something, when they are wanting to serve back or give back. So having a student say, I want to go and serve one day at the children's home I grew up in because I want to show the kids there now that it's possible. I think what is so powerful about that is it's something deeper inside that says, like, I actually have something to offer. Like, I Mm -hmm. have something to offer to someone else. And I think that goes all the way back to you being a 13-year-old and realizing, like, there was purpose for you. And in that journey, especially like think about the last five years getting to Mexico, like what's something that you've learned about God? Oh, wow. I've learned so many things. 
I think I never knew how much I would have to know, get to know myself moving here than I did. And if I, if it could like say it in one word, maybe it's God's faithfulness never stops. He is so faithful. Like he is always there. Even when I can't see him one day, the next day I'll see like, oh, that's what, that's what you were doing. And for me, that has been the most incredible thing that I have seen God in those moments where I really miss my family living so far away and him providing me people that take me in as family. And so seeing God answering prayers that I almost don't even dare to pray out loud because he just knows me so well, that has been one of the things I've been learning from God that he is there. I was really curious about when you said you had no idea how much you would have to get to know yourself. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what is what does that mean? What do you mean by that? So if you're telling somebody else to work on their story and to grow, you have to be willing to do it yourself first. Yeah. And for me, um, a lot of the times that we had moved growing up, I had avoided a lot of pain. I had a, like, I go into avoidance when I of when it's anything negative emotions, I don't like them. I don't never been very good at dealing with them. And so I think I have buried down a lot of the grief. And even that one thing I was talking about is probably one of the things we did do the best as a family was going through those seasons of grief whenever you leave something. And so I also lived five years in Spain. And when we moved from Spain, I remember I didn't tell my class that I was moving that next summer. So I just wouldn't show up and I was leaving this big part of myself and I had never even like really grieved that so through working on like trauma things and learning more about what different events in our life how that shapes us helped me to understand like okay I need to actually grieve that I need to grieve this fact that I never had a whole childhood in Norway or that I never did this or I was never part of this Not to say that what I had wasn't good enough, but it's okay sometimes to grieve something and still be thankful for what you got. And that those two emotions can live simultaneously. And so I think that was one of the things I've had to learn a lot. And then just learn about in those times when I don't feel enough or when I can't, it's okay to be vulnerable and it's okay to ask for help. I've never been very good at that either. And I've had to learn that here. So... (laughs) Those have been some of the things I've learned a lot about myself living here. And doing all that self-work on even just processing your own past and figuring out how to create a more vulnerable approach. How has that impacted your relationships um, within the role that you have and also even just with your peers and community as other staff? Yeah, I think it has helped me first and foremost to allow myself to grow deeper in friendships and not just keep them at a superficial level because that has always been my tendency. I'm very outgoing, very open, but not really very willing to share more of my deeper thoughts or anything like that. So it has allowed me to be kind of let go. And like, even if I were not to live here for the rest of my life, that goodbye will come when it comes and that's okay. But that shouldn't stop me from going deeper and allowing those friendships to be as true and honest as possible. And it has taught me to have those multiple feelings and emotions at the same time and teach that. So I can teach a student now that 
it's okay to be excited to go and live independently in your first apartment, but at the same time, grief that you're not living with your biological family. It's okay to be excited about going into college, but grief that you're leaving the safety of high school. And I think learning that for myself and being able to now have that as some, an experience I can teach others, even other coworkers that come in as expats and feel that afraid and excited emotion at the same time and say, that's normal, that's okay has been a true blessing. Yeah, that's really important that joy and grief can coexist. I think that's a really powerful lesson and takeaway that that's impactful. Thanks for being so vulnerable and open to share that with us. Absolutely. Yeah, you've mentioned several times you've had a lot of changes, a lot of moves. And am I correct that five years is the longest you've lived anywhere? Is that right? It's actually kind of like four and a half years. That's wild. In May, I actually kind of beat my own record here in Monterey. So currently, Monterey has been the place I've lived the longest consecutively in my whole life. Congratulations. Which is probably more scary than moving. Yeah. For so me, that's, like staying, that's, it's more scary than moving. Yeah. That's what I know about you. So that's what I'm curious about. Like what, because most people would probably hear that and think, oh, good for her. She finally gets to be settled. She's finally not going anywhere. She's finally not packing up again. But I know this about you, that that makes you feel scared. And so I would love for you to unpack that a little bit for us. Yeah, I mean, for the one who grew up in the same neighborhood their whole life, packing up and moving probably is the most terrifying thing ever. My whole life has been moving every two to four years. And so that's just kind of become a pattern in my life. And it has always felt, especially in my adult life, that it has been led by God and in the right time and season. Right now, I'm in this season of, I don't feel like God has confirmed in my life that I'm going to stay in Monterey for the rest of my life. But I also don't have a yes, go or anything that I'm seeing like forward. So it has been a season of trusting God and just walking where I'm at and taking one step at a time and not knowing the plan. Mm. And having multiple doors open, um, last week I got to speak or be a part of this governmental political meeting where they're talking about initiatives for aging out youth and to be able to sit there as Norwegian in a Mexican room and just be like, what am I doing here? But going through those doors and those openings and allowing God to kind of shape my life, this has been one step at a time is definitely a trusting process and exciting and scary all at the same time. <laughs> Who do you stay for? Oh, that's a good question. First and foremost, honestly, I stay for God. Mm. And even there are days where I don't feel like I am making any impact at all, or I'm like, I'm just living normal life in Mexico. I wake up and I have my breakfast and I go to work and I come home. But it's seeing, so my grandparents were missionaries as well. So I have a long history of family and ministry. And it's seeing kind of God's faithfulness through my whole kind of generational family story and through hardship and through different things, always seeing that he's there. And so I stay because God has kind of let me, told told me to stay. Mm -hmm. And I know that when I'm in his will and when I'm moving in those steps that I feel him guiding me is when I'm at my best. It's when I'm out of that comfort zone, but in his will, 
it's just given me so many great experiences. I don't want to miss out on anything that he wants for me because I know that's the best for me. You've lived in a lot of countries, which means you've interacted with a lot of people and a lot of them probably never got to say thank you. So I want to say thank you on behalf of the kids who showed up to that Saturday morning program in Argentina and got to hang out with a 14-year-old who looked at them, saw them, looked at them in the eyes, fed them, played with them. And when all the, maybe all the other adults were busy and somebody saw them. I want to thank you on behalf of the immigrant in Norway who feels on the outside and lost in this language and culture and cold, snowy place and is invited in by you to be a friend and to have someone walk alongside them and see them there too. I thank you on behalf of the teenagers whose faces were just outlined in the Norwegian newspaper and you prayed for them. And Mm -hmm. I, I can't wait till we get to heaven and God gets to show you the way that things moved on their behalf because of your prayers. Mm-hmm. And I want to thank you on behalf of teenagers who are taking very big, scary, brave steps into adulthood and knowing that they don't have to do it alone mm-hmm. because Sarah invites them to coffee and Sarah shows up at their soccer games and Sarah shows them how to make a grocery list and walks in the store with them. And it shows them that they can do it and they're special and they matter. Thank you so much. <laughs> You're welcome, Sarah. Yeah. I was wondering because I I do think this is a very unique experience for us. If you would not mind saying farewell in three languages. Oh, I love that. Because <laughs> that's not really happened for us as a... <laughs> As a podcast, and this is pretty impressive, the type of guest we have. I mean, but you speak three, but you told me once, like, three, kind of four, maybe five. Really? Is that true? <laughs> I mean, I don't count understanding Swedish because it's so similar to Norwegian. I do know quite a I bit I would of totally Dutch. count understanding a different language. For sure. Totally. I would count <laughs> But anything. I only count the three, honestly. <laughs> all right. Will you say goodbye to us and all three of them? Mm-hmm. So, goodbye. Thank you for having me. Muchas gracias por tenerme. Hasta luego. Tusen tack för invitationen. Ha det gott. When Sarah starts to share about her journey as a child, and then she ends with such a fun conclusion for us of saying goodbye in these three languages, I can't help but think about how formative our younger years are in giving us access, the intentionality to grow up in a multi-ethnic, multi-generational environment within different countries had such an influence on Sarah. And I I want to give more of that to my kids. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think there's such a richness in the experience of getting to be in and amongst a different culture than our own culture of origin. That makes me think I want to continue to put myself in spaces where Mm -hmm. I experience cultures different from my culture of origin. I was thinking about when we were talking to Sarah, I had this book when I was growing up of um, different kids from all around the world. And it was like on each page, a different country, and it would tell you a little bit about what life's like in their country. And I would read it over and over and Mm. over and over. And even though I didn't travel internationally as a child, I think about the ways in which we can give kids experiences and give ourselves experiences, even if we can't travel, even if it's watching a movie that highlights a different culture. Right. 
And then what that does for our compassion and what that does for our understanding of, um, I guess like a, my way is not always the right way because it's the way I've always done it. And that's what I see a lot and heard Sarah say is she has an adaptability because she doesn't see one right way. Yeah. Yeah. I think as we talk about it, one of the things that, that does stand out to me for the framework of her conversation is that even since she was younger, um, younger as in like child and adolescent and then as a professional, um, emerging generations were always the thread mm -hmm. in there for her. So mm -hmm. the who that matters to me is is pretty consistent in the story. The how and the where has been transformative. And I think that's an important piece of all of our stories. Is And, and I find some good aha moments in that of thinking. It's really interesting that we're wired to be passionate about a someone or a something, mm -hmm. but then we're usually surprised in how and where we get to live that part out. And that's something that I've seen resonate in Sarah's story that I identified with mm -hmm. as well. You have some overlap with Sarah in this particular story, especially because the role that she currently plays um, in Monterey overseeing a transition to independence mm -hmm. for uh, young adults, leaders, uh, you know, that just kind of that bridging generation. Think, think as a listener between that, you know, 17 to 22 mm -hmm. age range that these are going to be a lot of the same faces that you would have spent time with when you were on staff in Monterey yeah. um, in different roles. Why do you think it's so important that organizations like Back to Back and just as a community or just maybe even as a parent mm -hmm. um, or an uncle or a grandparent that we think about what this age group needs in this transition phase when we're talking about independence? Yeah, there's this mindset sometimes that at 18, like they fly the coop and they're good and they're off on their own and they're independent. And that doesn't come without a lot of intentional investing. And that's kind of a myth because I'm over 30 years old and sometimes I still call my dad because oh, sure. I need something and I have a question and I don't know how to do something. And we still rely on people even when we're adults and quote unquote independent. Mm. So when I think about the need for community that Sarah really highlighted, and I think about how important that is for anyone, but then I think about the unique experiences of a child who's lived in a children's home, which are the is the context that Sarah's working in. So a child who's lived in a children's home, I mentioned it in the episode, but a lot of times it's like this little self-contained world yeah. without a lot of outside experiences. Um, I took the boys that I was taking care of when I lived there to a restaurant and after finishing his plate, one of the boys stood up and started to walk away with his plate. And I said, where are you going? And he said, oh, I'm going to go ask for seconds. And I said, well, we, we're in a restaurant. You don't ask for You could order another entree and pay, but nobody does that. And I had this like aha moment of without outside world experiences. Now, not that going to a restaurant is a life skill, but it kind of is yeah. if you're gonna be a functional part of a community that celebrates things together and does things together. But that experience of going to a restaurant is not something he'd ever had to know how to even behave there or act there or what to do there. And so then put that child into the world at 18 without ever having had someone walk alongside him and show him there's going to be a lot of gaps. And that's why this role is so critical that Sarah's filling is somebody to walk alongside them, but also connect them to mm -hmm. other people to pick up the phone when they don't know what to wear to the wedding 
or they don't know how to change the tire, or they don't know what to do because their lease is ending, but they have to move somewhere else. What do I do with my stuff in between? I just think of all the ways that community supports, especially a young adult. And it's a really critical time period for long-term success. Yeah, I've found the same thing in um, different neighborhoods that I've spent the last few years where um, whether it's a siloed mindset from the city toward a neighborhood or there's a siloed mindset for safety within a neighborhood that the lack of access to multiple perspectives or experiences uh, creates a disparity in felt safety when I then shift to another location. Mm -hmm. It also ties, in, especially with an institutional background, like what, what Sarah is mentioning of, of some partnerships, the United States, I think about this less about like an orphanage or a children's home mindset and more how we institutionalize, you know, punitive consequences mm -hmm. within mm -hmm. our juvenile justice system that uh, a few experiences within a jail or some incarcerated, um, you know, framework leads a, a, a belief system of a child to have relationships tied to institutions that I connect. Or if your only safe adults are in a school program or an after school program. And when we're trying to effort people towards sustainability and we believe graduation or success is independent and not needing to utilize this resource anymore, what we unintentionally do is we tie the relationship to the resource. Mm -hmm. And so a child begins to believe the lie that I'm successful when I don't need relationship with you anymore. And because I graduated yeah. your program, I graduated your after school right. thing or you know, I finished high school. Safest person for me was in this high school. You told me to go away to college. Now I believe that if I call you, then that means I'm regressing. So mm -hmm. instead I go out and I find myself in these really lonely places. Mm -hmm. What I love about what what Sarah's, you know, in, endeavoring on is creating this opportunity where our dependence or our interdependence on resources can fade and our relationships can stay healthy and in community over time. And that is what like a healthy life should look like as mm -hmm. opposed to my relationships are tied to this organization. And if I'm not in the organization or if I'm not tied to the children's home, I don't have any relationships. Yeah, I think there's so many takeaways that we could take from that concept of thinking about, okay, who am I walking alongside as they move into independence, like what young adult is in my life and how have I made it like a good thing that they reach out for support and help yeah, or how yeah. have I framed it as something that they shouldn't need or shouldn't do? Yeah. And how can I walk that back and say, hey, I'm here if you need something. I, I wanna help be part of your support system. There's probably young adults in churches who have moved far away from their family yeah. and could benefit from a community coming around them. Yeah, I, I just the other day it was it was Juneteenth and we were trying to be intentional as a as a family and I snapped a picture. I'm in this park and it's the backs of, of four boys that are huddled up, three ethnicities huddled up mm -hmm. between two trees, planning a hide and seek game together. And I and I grabbed the photo, I think I was caught by it to think he's growing up differently mm -hmm. than I did. 
just because we decided to show up at a park in a certain neighborhood. That was that was really the only intentional choice I made as a dad was we're going to go to this park or this park because I know that it creates an opportunity for normal childlike things to happen um, with my son in a place where he just gets to be a kid, but he gets to see the world and hear stories and navigate, you know, cultural values and belief systems with his own voice instead of me telling him about it. And I think it's just a small, a small step like that. That is a takeaway Mm -hmm. for me of just, you know, it can be a park, but is it also a restaurant? Is it also Mm -hmm. the coffee shop that I choose? Is it, um, the way in which I think about where I meet to talk about faith and, and in community and what does neighborhood look like for me? Those are questions that I think can lead all of us to take relationships and multi-ethnic experiences with us wherever we go. Well, if you want to know more about the program that Back to Back runs called Transitioning to Independence, you can find information on our website. You can find information about Sarah and the work that's happening in Monterey. We thank you for listening and we'll see you on the next episode.